Grab your Bible, turn with me to the book of Jude. We're in the second part of our series, Hey from Jude, how to take a sad song and make it better. If you don't know where Jude is, I will sing it to you. Hey Jude, it's in the back. After third John, before Revelation. So now you know. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Open, oh, see, busy singing, didn't even open it, but I had it marked. Today we're only focusing on um, verses 5 through 7, but just to, again, give us the flavor of where we're at, we're going to start from verse 1. Remember that Jude um, is a first century letter from Jude, uh, most likely the half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. He's writing to first century Christians uh, that he cares about, and there is a crisis situation going on. He writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God, the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men, who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on, on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns which gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, they suffered as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Woo! That's some stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we again are grateful for Jude, a man who deeply cared about his friends and saw they were in trouble and put himself out there in a a powerful way. He's loving them in some very strong words. Lord, it would be easy for us to hear these kind of strong words and shut down automatically. But Lord, help us not to do that. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying. What you said to them then, but also to what you would want to say to us today. Help me as I, as I, as I try to minister these words. May your Holy Spirit take these words that you inspired and illuminate our hearts to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, Jude is writing this letter as a kind of intervention, an intervention into the lives of a community of people that he deeply cared about. The problem was that his, this church, this community was being sabotaged. They were being sabotaged. They were being destroyed from the inside, from the inside out. 
The danger that Jude was writing about here is still a very clear and present danger for followers of Jesus today, for Christian communities today. The greatest dangers we face as Christians, as churches, and this is, I think, an important thing just to to know. No matter what we see on the news or hear, especially in an election year, because I think it's amazing how different political parties will, will... Try to make their points of view um, using religion and scare us into going this direction or that direction. That's been the case for so long. But the greatest enemies we face as Christians. Think about it. Jesus said, "I I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The greatest dangers we face come not from atheists. Not from other religions, not from liberals, not from conservatives, not from Republicans, not from Democrats, not from homosexuals, not from scientists. The greatest dangers we face come from within our own ranks, within our own churches, within our own communities. There's three Old Testament warnings that Jude gave us in verses 5 through 7 here. Three Old Testament warnings. The the Exodus generation, fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you're a student of the Bible and if you studied um, Genesis at all, two of those should be really familiar to them. One of them, you're probably going, huh? Um, You might be thinking, well, maybe Noah and the ark and that whole episode, but you'd probably be scratching your head a little bit. Let's take a look at these three. Um, Quickly, let's take a look at these three and see what it is, why Jude is using them. And before, as we do that, I want to explain something to you. Jude uh, is Jewish, and he's using a form of Jewish argumentation or a a form of Jewish reasoning. Um, This is, he's doing what's called a midrash. He's, He's throwing up all these Old Testament types and examples. This is not the way we would probably make our arguments today. Okay. Now, granted, that's we don't typically do this this style of warning people so much today as what Jude is doing. Okay. Let's take a look at these three warnings that he gives in verses five through seven, and try to see what he's getting at, and how it still might actually have a lot to tell us today. The Exodus generation. You know, if you've if you study the Torah or you've read the Book of Exodus, you know that the people of Israel. Um, had found themselves in Egypt for somewhere around the period of 430 years. During that time, there was a major regime change in who was in charge in Egypt. And the new regime change did not like the Hebrews and were afraid of the Hebrews. The Hebrews were in a strategic position in the land of Goshen, which means Egypt is down here in the south, and Egypt's chief enemy at the time was to the north, the Hittite Empire. Right? So Egypt had enemies. The people of Israel were in Goshen, which is up in the north. And so they may have, these, this new regime may have been afraid that if the Hittites attacked, the, the uh, Israelites, because they weren't Egyptian, might have turned and became allies and, and sabotaged Egypt, Egypt from inside. You tracking with me? And so they started a period of systematic oppression. 
against the Hebrews that ended up in what the book of Exodus describes as a full-on enslavement. Um, where they're literally really being worked to death. And so they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up Moses and sends him to deliver the people of Israel. And God did it. God judged uh, Egypt in a spectacular and unbelievable way. Sent uh, nine plagues and a judgment on the firstborn, or ten plagues. And, and the Pharaoh released the, released the children of Israel so that they could leave. And on the way out, they came to the Red Sea, or came to a great sea, and they were there, and the Egyptian army, the Pharaoh changed his mind, and the Egyptian army is coming out, and they're going to destroy them. There is no way out of this. And God does a miracle, and the sea is, is opened up, a way is opened up for them, and they travel through the sea on dry land, and when they get to the other side, the waters come back and destroy Pharaoh's army. It was spectacular, and they sat on the side, uh, they sat on, on the shore, and they wrote amazing songs about this great event. Uh, this event is pivotal, pivotal uh, in the understanding of, uh, the self-understanding of God's people. An incredible event. And so they journey to Mount Sinai, where they become a nation. They make a covenant with God. They enter into this covenant relationship. They receive the law, and they receive a new, a new place of worship. They're in the, in, in the wilderness there. God miraculously provides for them. This is a, a barren wilderness. And they, water comes from the most unlikely sources, and food seems to miraculously come down from heaven. It was an incredible time, but they weren't meant to be there very long. And so they get ready and they march out in their ranks and they're on the border of what is going to be what is called the promised land. That God is giving them the land of Canaan, this, this beautiful fertile region where they are going uh, to be just outrageously blessed. And so they're there on the border um, ready to go in and take this land and they send in some spies, some people to check out the land. All of the spies come back, and only two of them, only two of them tell, make the report that we can do this. God is with us. We can go in and take this country. All of the rest of the spies began to discourage the community, and they said, there's giants in the land. Yes, the land is fantastic. It's unbelievable. But there's giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers. This is, there's no way we can do this. And all of Israel basically turned and followed. How many was it? The 11? All of Israel turns and follows. Is it the 10 spies or 11? 10. 10 spies. The 10 spies that discouraged Israel and told them, we can't do this. Israel believed them and turned back to Egypt. And God judged them. That whole generation, the entire generation that actually witnessed God doing those miraculous judgments on Egypt, the entire generation that came through the sea on dry land and saw the waves come back and crush Pharaoh's army, that entire generation died in the wilderness. They didn't die in the promised land and they didn't die in Egypt. They wandered the barren wilderness for 40-ish years until they were all dead. The only two that got to go through were the two spies that said, we can do this because God is for us. Caleb and Joshua. 
Jude is, is making a point here. He's saying that they chose, even though they were a generation that witnessed God do all of this, they left Egypt in spectacular fashion with God doing, just clearing the way for them, going ahead of them and behind them. They, they, those same people that experienced that, came out and at a critical moment, the moment of truth, they chose not to believe God for the promised land. That's astounding to me. They made a choice. Uh, The Greek language here in this text makes it clear. They made a distinct choice at a moment in time. A distinct choice of unbelief. And it cost them the promised land. That is scary to me. Because I like to think that, you know, I can make, you know, that... God is loving and forgiving all the time and that, you know, I can make stupid choices and then God will just take them and fix them. But here you see a picture of the possibility of making a choice that will cost you. Now, do these people go to hell? That's not what we're talking about here. They missed out on this, the promised land. Why? I don't know. The giants is an obvious reason. The giants is an obvious reason. But when you, read, when you read the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, there's a, you see some other things. Comfort and stability was another reason. See, they knew what to expect in Egypt. They knew how to live lives as slaves in Egypt. But how to live as free people under the rule of God in a promised land was not something that they had ever experienced. Not something that, that they could really wrap their mind around. And so they began to look back to Egypt and and remember all the good things about Egypt, even though they hated their life there. In Egypt, there was a certain amount of comfort, even though you were a slave. At least you knew what time things were happening. There was a, a routine and you knew what to expect. There was stability because, you know, you knew, even though you were barely getting by, you knew what to expect. And there was a certain stability in the way of life there, even though... It was a life that they hated. Then there was also sensual pleasures. Over and over and over in the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites complain about their food. All the time. Are always complaining about their food. God gives them manna, the bread of angels. And they eat that and they're like, yeah, this is pretty good. You know what would be really good with this though? Some meat. And they complain and complain and complain until God gives them so much meat and they eat it and then they start to die. They're eating so much meat that they're just like getting stuffed with it. And, and the Bible says that, that they, some were dead while their meat was in their teeth. But they're always complaining about, always complaining about their food. And they thought back to Egypt. Oh, there's melons in Egypt and there's this food in Egypt and there's that food in Egypt. You know, if you've ever been, if you're you know, not from Arizona, or you ever lived somewhere else, there's always those, those food places where you come from that you're like, oh, but if I could only have some. For me, it's Vince's Spaghetti in Ontario and Upland, California. The best spaghetti on the entire planet. I'm just like, oh, but if I could only have some Vince's. These people were doing that um, just constantly. If we could only go back and have this food or that food. 
Maybe the giants, maybe comfort and stability, maybe their, their, their desire to satisfy uh, their, um, their desire for sensual pleasure. But they died neither in the promised land nor in Egypt because they failed to believe this, that God just didn't save them out of something. He saved them to something. The wilderness was never a place where they were supposed to spend the rest of their life and die. The wilderness was a place that they were meant to pass through because God saved them out of Egypt, but he was wanting to save them into the promised land. For some reason, they believed to get out of Egypt, but couldn't believe to get into the promised land or wouldn't. Let's look at the second example, fallen angels. Now, this is the one that's a little bit tricky. Fallen angels. This, uh, this text, what Jude is quoting here when he's talking about angels who didn't stay in their place, um, Jude, is, Jude is literally quoting or paraphrasing an ancient legend, a very ancient legend that attempts to explain the origin of evil. You know what myths and legends do, generally speaking? A myth or a legend, um, and myth more than legend, gives a story that gives an explanation for why things are the way they are. That's what a myth does. A myth or a legend gives an explanation for why things are the way that they are. Okay? Um, So this is a very... There's an ancient uh, legend, a very ancient legend, about the origin of evil... Uh, found in a book that you don't find in your Bible, but it's a Hebrew writing called the Book of Enoch. Jude quotes from Enoch and another book that's not in the Bible called The Assumption of Moses. Right? Um, you can. These are not like, some people are like, ooh, there's hidden books that didn't make it in the Bible. The books really aren't hidden. I got a bunch of them on my shelf at home. If you want to read them, you can borrow them. And I read Enoch this week. So it's not like the ancient Christians were like, oh my gosh, we need to hide these ones. It wasn't like that. People were reading all these books, and, and some of them, through a process, um, were eliminated from, from the official canon of Scripture. Um, but in Jude's day, in Jude's day, this legend, this myth, was very widely known. Very widely known. It's all, it also may be hinted at um, in Genesis, in the story of the flood. In the story of the flood with Noah. Um, in this in this ancient legend or myth, they're trying to get out where did all the evil in the world come from? You know, think about it this week. How do you explain something as horrific as the shooting that happened in Aurora, Colorado? It's scary when you actually think about it. Where does that come from? Humans throughout history have tried to answer that question. And so in this legend, uh, are any of you guys like um, into Greek mythology at all? Students of Greek mythology, love Greek mythology? Okay, so you've heard, you you know about where um, Hercules came from, right? Hercules is the son of who? Zeus and a human woman, right? Right? This is... The ancient or the um, Greek mythology may trace its origins as well to even more ancient legends than itself. Okay, this legend may may also be 
um, drawing on the same ancient legends that Greek mythology came out of as well. This is how the legend goes. Is that the origin of evil comes from these watchers or these angels who were set up to watch humanity. And instead what happened was they began to see that there was a lot of fine human women. There's some incredibly gorgeous, unbelievable human women down there. And these angels in the story began to lust after these human women. And they got together and had a meeting. Because apparently angel women are not that hot in this story. They got together and had a meeting and made a deal that about 200 of them would leave. And they would come down to a place called Mount Hermon. And they would take these human women as their wives and have sex with them. That's how this story goes. And so they bound themselves with an oath. And they did it. And what ended up happening was these human women had children who were half angel or watcher and half human. And that's where the great giants came from in the ancient world. Does it sound a little like Hercules to you? Now, granted, change the names, but the same kind of story. This is, this is a common stories in the ancient world. Well, in Enoch, these angels are judged. But because of what these angels had done, the land was filled with wickedness and violence and evil. They taught humanity all kinds of evil. And how it ends up going is that these angels are judged and bound with chains um, and held in darkness waiting for the great day of judgment. That's how the story in Enoch goes. These great messengers of light were bound with chains and imprisoned in darkness awaiting a great day of judgment because they crossed a sacred boundary. Let's go on to the third warning. He talks to us about, Jude talks to us about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you've probably heard these words, Sodom and Gomorrah, especially in our climate today. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah are often cited as examples against homosexuals. But what we're going to find here in Jude is that homosexuality is not really where he's, what he's talking about. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God was going to destroy these cities because of their incredible wickedness. But Abraham convinced God that if there was, um, what, ten righteous people in the city... If, there was, if he could find ten righteous people, then God wouldn't destroy it. And so um, these angels go off and they warn Lot, who was a nephew of Abraham. And when the angels got there to warn Lot, what ended up happening was that the men of the city came out and came to the house of Lot and began to bang on the door. They were going to tear this place down. And they were saying, bring those guys out here to us. We're going to have our way with them. This is a very adult story, by the way. In case you didn't know this yet, the Bible is really not PG at all. No matter how many Bible characters you've seen on flannel boards as cartoons. Have their way with them. This is, they're playing by prison rules, people. 
This is not a good day. And so they came and they were going to tear this place down. And Lot, doing something that none of us really get today, he's like, no, no, just leave these guys alone. They came into my house. I'm showing them hospitality. They're under my protection. Here, have my virgin daughters. Could you imagine being the daughter that day? Huh? Really? What ends up happening is the angels strike the entire crowd with blindness. Lot and his family escape, and Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, along with the surrounding towns around them. And there's obviously the famous story about Lot's wife, who looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. Because they weren't to look back, they were just to get out of there as fast as possible. Now let's look at the what... now. People tend to think, you know, there's a couple ways of looking at it, that these these men of Sodom were wanting to commit homosexual acts. But that doesn't seem to be necessarily what what, um, Jude is referring to here. Jude in Greek says that these, these, these men were pursuing, going after... Strange or other flesh. The words in Greek are sarkos, uh, heteros. The second word, did you hear something that might have been familiar to you? Heteros. Like where we would get the word hetero. Like heterosexual. Right? If you're heterosexual, you desire a different gender from you to be with. You know, if you're homosexual, you desire the same. Jude here uses the word sarkos, which is about, it's the word for flesh, right? The body, the flesh. And heteros, meaning a different kind of flesh. Different kind of flesh. And he just told us a story about angels who abandoned their place to have sex with human women. And now he seems to flip it the opposite on us. That these people burned with lust for these angelic messengers. And they were attempting to cross a sacred boundary in the opposite direction. Not angels trying to mate with humans, but humans trying to mate with angels. Strange and different flesh. They burned with lust for angels and attempted to cross the sacred boundary that made human life possible. Human life and human flourishing in the blessing of God. By force, they were going to cross this boundary. In other words, by rape. By raping angelic messengers. Their cities were consequently consumed with eternal fire. Eternal fire, maybe not so much in the sense of hell, you know, but in the sense like this. If you were to live over there in the days that Jude is writing this, Sodom and Gomorrah are somewhere, are reported to be somewhere in the Dead Sea region. There's a sea in the, in the south of Egypt that water flows into, but there's really no outlet for it. And the salinity, the salt content of that water is, is, I don't know how many more times salty than the ocean. There's like salt bergs floating around in it. If you got into the Dead Sea and wanted to swim underwater, you're not going to be able to do it very well. Because you are, you're so buoyant, it just throws you to the top. Heard a story of a man who was um, uh, scuba diving in there. And he had to wait, he had to put 
tons of weight onto himself to be able to go under the water. And so there are also geothermal sites there. You know, like if you've ever been to, um, I went to, not Yosemite. No? Yellowstone. Yellowstone Yellowstone is a serious geothermal site. There's there's, um, uh, mud pots and geysers. Because you're like kind of in, on an active volcano at that point. There's geothermal sites down there. And so it's interesting where Sodom and Gomorrah was, um, at least at the time of this writing, these th- geothermal sites are active. And so you can always see the steam and smell the smell of sulfur down there. And there's always enough salt around to remind you about Lot's wife. And there's crazy um, uh, geologic features One of them is called Lot's wife down there. He's reminding them that they're gone, but the smoke is still rising to remind us. Even more interesting is, is, uh, according to ancient legend, the place where the angels who left their place to pursue human women, the place where they were bound and put in chains was repeated or was reported to be below the ground in that same area. It's almost like the two are one in that same region. Now, is that absolutely, you know, just some interesting, interesting features of what Jude is talking to us about. Three warnings. One of them is out of chronological order. Did you, did you pick up on that? He tells us about the Exodus, fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Which one's out of order? The Exodus. When a biblical writer puts something out of order like that, it may be because he's trying to call our attention to it and emphasize it. And that may be what's happening here. Think about it like this. In all three of these stories, in one sense, all three of these examples were judged and destroyed by God. You with me? In another, on the other hand, in another sense... All three actually destroyed themselves by their unbelief and violation of God's created order. All three destroyed themselves by their unbelief and their violation of God's created order. Right? Let's get back to what Jude is writing about. These saboteurs. These saboteurs that have infiltrated this early church and are destroying it from the inside out. What is he telling us about them? I think this is incredibly reasonable. It seems that Jude's saboteurs were Christian, at least in name. Christians were created. I mean, Christian initially was a derogatory term, most likely. But to be a Christian beyond just being a follower of Jesus meant to be in a community that was created in Christ to be a new humanity. A new way to be human on this earth. A new way. A new humanity. A community where God was displaying a foretaste of what the fullness of the kingdom of God is going to be like. Think about it. A community where boundaries that divide humans from one another are erased. Uh, Boundaries of ethnicity and race and class and economics. All erased. So these saboteurs were Christian in name, but they abandoned their belief in the nature of God's true kingdom to pursue 
the lusts of this broken world in the name of Jesus. You following me? They were Christian in name, but they really had abandoned their belief in the kingdom of God, the promised land, so that they could pursue the lusts of this broken world in the name of Jesus, under the guise of Jesus. Seventeen pastors, or seventeen hundred pastors, leave the ministry in North America every month, um, according to one article that I read this week. Seventeen hundred pastors leave the ministry every month. Seven thousand churches close their doors every year. That's alarming, isn't it? But I wondered this week, how many more pastors and churches actually close their doors and quit in a way that isn't so obvious? How many quit in a way that's very difficult to see? How many quit on the inside? Well, on the outside, they keep up appearances. These later Christians are the ones I think that we should be the most concerned about. They are the most elusive and dangerous statistic. Today, the message of Jesus has been transformed by some people into a multi-billion dollar industry that skyrockets celebrity Christians well into the top 2% of wealthiest Americans. That, by itself, isn't the problem. The problem is that it happens at the expense of the most vulnerable members of our society. The poor, the broken, and the elderly. I'll tell you about my friend Dan. At birth, Dan was a healthy child, normal child. It didn't last very long. Uh, within, when he was 10 months old, Dan was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy, which he described as um, a neuromuscular disease that basically is terminal. His mother was told that he wouldn't live to be 12 years old, and the doctors advised his parents just to put him in hospice. In other words, let him die so that they wouldn't be burdened with raising a child like this. His parents refused and insisted that he was going to be a part of the family, and they brought him home. And they included him in their family life. I met Dan when he rolled into our church on a Friday night in his wheelchair sometime in 1997. An extraordinary guy. Soon after I met him, in the next year, a very famous Christian faith healer uh, came to our region and was going to hold a miracle crusade in what was then called the Anaheim uh, Arrowhead Pond. I think today it's called the Honda Center. It was where the Ducks played back in the day, and I don't know what's going on there these days. But he was going to hold a miracle crusade, and he held these all around the world. Dan wanted to be healed. And who would blame him for that? His entire life that he can remember, he was bound in in a wheelchair. His arms and legs twisted, and he sat there, Uh, But he was incredibly intelligent. Who would blame him? And we believe that God could do that. I still believe today that God could do that. 
that's not hard for me to believe. If God can create the universe, surely he could do that. And so Julie um, and some friends hopped in Dan's handicap-accessible van um, in that time and headed down to the pond. Uh, Our faith and our hope was running really high because all of us couldn't wait to see Dan walk. That time we just believed that God's hand was on Dan and Dan was going to walk. The next time I saw Dan, he was still in his wheelchair. He didn't receive his miracle. And I reasoned, I was obviously disappointed, and I reasoned, well, you know, that happens. I mean, not even Jesus healed everybody. And even the people that Jesus did heal eventually died of something, right? Even Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If I was Lazarus, I would be like, oh, really? Okay, this is cool, but now I've got to die again. Who wants to go through that twice? So I'm thinking, well, that happens. But something kept bothering me. When, G- when Julie and Dan and the other friends arrived uh, at the crusade uh, that night, they were directed to sit as far away from the platform as possible. Or just about as far away from the platform as possible. Right, Julie? in a balcony section high above where the action took place. Dan was never prayed for. Dan was never prayed for. What happened to Dan was documented by several other sources as a standard practice in this miracle ministry. That there's a screening process at the Crusades that ensures only a few people who successfully complete the process are invited to the platform to be prayed for. This has been caught by investigative journalists and all kinds of people from, I think, Dateline NBC um, to 60 Minutes. I began to think about it. I've never seen one, I've never seen one visibly handicapped person like Dan be prayed for and healed at one of that ministry's crusades. I've never seen one. People are always healed of things that you can't see very well. Emotional problems, depression, even cancer. But I don't think I've ever seen a guy roll up twisted in a wheelchair the way Dan was on the stage of those crusades at that ministry and watches God miraculously creates limbs where there's no real limbs to speak of. Never seen it. At the same time, people who are desperate for miracles are regularly told that they should give money as a seed of faith to receive their miracle. In other words, if you want a miracle, you plant a seed of faith and that grows into the miracle you need. They're regularly told that. In 2006, that ministry was audited, and their financial reports for the year of 2006 revealed that they took in $97.93 million. In the years since, this world-renowned faith healer has admitted to having an inappropriate friendship with a recently divorced female celebrity preacher while he was still married. 
He was eventually divorced by his own wife in 2010 after years of separation. Rumor is they may get married again soon. But today he continues to enjoy a high-profile international ministry that takes in millions of dollars from people who are desperately seeking a miracle. Where does the millions of dollars come from? I think Jude would urge us not to tolerate this kind of abuse being perpetrated in the name of Jesus. I think Jude might even agree with one contemporary Jewish rabbi who says this. This is what a Jewish rabbi says about it. I hope there, are a, there is a special place in hell for people who try to enrich themselves on the sufferings of others. To tantalize the blind, the lame, the dying, the afflicted, the terminally ill, to dangle hope before parents of a severely afflicted child is an indescribably cruel thing to do. And to do it in the name of God, to do it in the name of religion, I think, is unforgivable. I think Jesus could forgive people like this. Jude encourages his first readers, I think along with you and I, to take up the fight for faith. The authentic faith that was once and for all delivered to the church. Jude is encouraging us all to remember what this is really about. Remember what this is about. He's encouraging us to not allow our faith, the faith of Christ, to be redefined by those who live with no moral restraint restraint, and take advantage of those to whom we are called to serve. Ministries that do that to people really only exist because we support them. We fund them, and we support them. After all of that, I can't imagine how they are still in business. And this is happening all over. And then I look at a church like ours, and I wish we took in 90-something million last year. <laughs> you know, And it, it wouldn't even be that the, the, the minister that I spoke of was making about a million dollars a year at that time. million dollars a year. Which, you know, if that's how God wants to bless you, but it's the... I'm watching it. There's another guy, and I'll just straight tell you this dude's name. There's a guy named Peter Popoff. Lives in Upland, California. And he has a show that occasionally I see on, of all channels, BET. Oh, no, no. This is, it shocks me, really. It just absolutely is appalling to me. I mean, he's been caught as a con artist. I mean, he sells miracle spring water to people. And every time I see some crusade that he's doing in a hotel ballroom, the audience is filled with impoverished African-American women. Filled. And it's the same message. Sow your seed of faith for your miracle. It's nuts to me. And they're everywhere. And I look at a church like ours.
And I wonder sometimes if we realize what God has done here. And the real fight that we're really in. Will we sit back and let people who are taking advantage of people build the huge ministries, rake in all the dollars, take advantage of people? Or will we get up and fight the fight of faith? Are we going to show the world what Jesus is really about and what the Christian community really is? We don't have to get up and fight them. You know, we don't got to hunt them down. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking that communities like ours have to understand that we're not second-class citizens, that God has done something in us incredible and special and authentic, and we must go public with this to the world. It really is our Christian duty to sit back and, and allow these people to continue to redefine for America what Christian look, Christianity looks like. As I read and studied this, I felt as if Jude would have said to me, Wake up! God's done, th- done something special in us. What are we going to do to go public and fight the fight of faith? To, in whatever way God enables us to do this next coming year, to give the world out there a glimpse of what Jesus looks like. Before they're completely turned off to Him. By people like Jude was describing. Stand with me.